0: Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season, my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. So we're going to move on now. We we
1: typically like to go chronologically uh, in these movies, but we're going to skip just a little bit. We're going to talk about Cape Fear uh, prior to talking about our final movie, which is Goodfellas, which came out a year before Cape Fear. But Cape Fear was a remake. It was one of these movies that Scorsese made, uh, you know, sort of on assignment. Uh, TJ told me uh, prior to the podcast, something I didn't know, that Steven Spielberg was supposed to make this movie. And boy, oh boy, what a different movie it might have been if it had been Spielberg, right? And uh, because of the different temperament that we're talking about. So it's basically about a a lawyer played by Nick Nolte, who was a defense attorney for Robert De Niro's, boy, we got three De Niro movies, it just occurred to me here. Robert De Niro's Max Cady, who had raped a teenage girl. Uh, Sam, uh, the the Nick Nolte character, withheld evidence that wouldn't have proven the client innocent, but it was about that the victim had been uh, sexually promiscuous. And so instead of sharing that with the jury, he held it back because of the horrible crime. And when De Niro's Max Cady goes off to prison for 14 years, he puts the uh, time to good use by he went in illiterate, he learned to read, and it turns out that he's actually a pretty smart guy, right? So first he learned to read kids' books, and then he started to, you know, read, you know, more and more challenging books. But he actually educated himself in the law, philosophy, and religion, and realized what Nulty's character had done. And that he had spent this time in jail when he didn't have to. So he determines he is going to get revenge. Okay. And so the first time we see De Niro's Max Katie, he is very imposing in prison, doing dips, you know, to exercise, covered in tattoos, many with a religious connotation, including a big cross on his back. He's getting out of jail and he devotes his life to terrorizing uh, Sam, his family. And plotting his revenge. Okay, so he starts showing up and threatening them uh, in kind of very subtle, smart ways so that uh, Nulty's character can't really get the police to do anything about it. One thing leads to another. We start, you know, uh, the De Niro character kills the dog. Then he attacks this woman that Nulty's character was on the verge of having an affair with, really brutalizes her in order to get you know again to to get at sam he seduces sam's daughter and played by mm. juliet lewis at the time she was supposed to be i think what 14 or 15 in the movie 15. Little yeah, little creepy here, right? I mean, really, really disturbing and creepy scene between De Niro and Juliette Lewis here. I, I looked it up. I think she, Juliette Lewis was actually seventeen when they made the movie. It wasn't a you know there was no sex or anything like that, but you know just again a little too close for comfort, you know, uh, you know, given the, the the circumstances. So they decide uh, first of all, let's see, one way to try and get the Max Cady character to go away is to hire three goons to beat him up. And threaten him. Nulty gives him kind of a warning before this happens, and uh, Max Cady is smart enough to record it uh, to get him on tape threatening him. And then they hire what have to be the three most incompetent goons that I've ever seen in a movie. Because even though they attack De Niro's character with uh, a bike chain and uh, lead pipe, so let's see, a lead pipe and a baseball bat, Max Cady gets the upper hand, beats them. And then gets a restraining order filed against Nulty's character. They decide, okay, we're going to entrap him. So they hire a a private investigator to set up, make it look like Nulty's character is going away with the hope and expectation that De Niro will come in to attack the family. Well, again, Max is too smart and ends up killing the private investigator as well as the maid. Nulty and his family, played by uh, Jessica Lang as his wife, and again, Juliette Lewis as the daughter, rush off to a houseboat they have on the Cape Fear River. I mean, good heavens, the movie's called Cape Fear. If this isn't about Six World, you know, what else would it be, right? But anyway, and there they have the final showdown with Max Cady's character. After, again, some pretty brutal scenes, they finally do manage to dispatch the Max Cady character and there's a nice kind of closing piece where mm-hmm. Nulty's character, he looks at his hands, right? He's laying by the river. There's this big storm and, you know, it's, it's, he's, beat, he's all beat up and stuff. And he looks at his palms and, of course, there's the stigmata on his hands, right? There's the blood on his hands which was the you know the where the nails went into Jesus so there's that imagery there's also this image of him trying to wash the blood off of his hands which was very Macbethish to me so the book of Job from the Bible comes again throughout the theme of this movie is referred to a number of times. And it's about the loss of innocence in the Juliet Lewis character, right? So she kind of does a voiceover to end the movie where she's talking about how, you know, years later life has gone on and we don't think about those days. We never talked about it. We kind of, you know, kind of, we put it into the closet, but the demon is still there. We know it in some way thing so good movie it was you know I, I thought it was a good movie certainly for me not one of his best but a good movie the other thing that struck me and I'm curious about you guys thoughts on this as I turn it over to you this to me was kind of the ultimate Brian De Palma movie right I couldn't help seeing Brian De Palma in almost every shot of this movie So thoughts and reactions to this, and then tell me what it had to do with Type 6. TJ, let me hear from you first, please.
0: Well, I can't say I know Brian De Palma's movies well enough to be able to say yes, absolutely. Um, All right. So I'll just leave it at that. But tell
1: us about type six then. Yeah, pass on that. You know, maybe Russell has something to say on it. Go ahead. Tell us about the six themes in this movie for you, TJ.
0: Yeah, well, to build on what, you know, you'd mentioned earlier is that Spielberg was the original director of the film, handed it over to Scorsese. Scorsese read the script a number of times while shooting Goodfellas and didn't like it. And primarily what he didn't like was that it was more black and white. Very much like the original film. So in the original film, the lawyers played by Gregory Peck. And Gregory Peck, probably a one in real life, often played ones on the screen, I did see that version of the movie years ago. I don't remember it well enough, but it's easy for me to imagine that that character was as stalwart and upright as Gregory Peck usually played characters to be. And that's what the plan for the remake was, is that it was going to be this good family of good people with integrity who are then harassed by this horrible, malignant marauder of a person. And Scorsese just thought, "Ah, I don't like that. I'd like it to be more ambivalent. So it was his contribution to make Nolte have buried the report to actually have some guilt. And he said, he literally said, the, the way I saw Max was that he becomes the collective guilt of the family. So not only was there that, but there's infidelity in Sam's history with his wife. And then, you know, in what we see in the movie is he gets close to being unfaithful yet again. And then the daughter is in summer school and she's being punished for having been caught smoking marijuana. So it's not the perfect Norman Rockwell American family that's being invaded by this. And then to build on that, there's the fact that Max Cady is both wrong in that he did brutalize and rape a teenage girl. But he is right in that, you know, as he says in the climax of the movie, is that every criminal has the right to a zealous defense by their defense lawyer. And he didn't get that. So he really does have an axe to grind. Not that his response is at all correct or proportionate to what happened. But he's not just a maniac coming out of nowhere like a wild animal. Right. Like he, so it's, it's, right. you don't get to see it as simply right and wrong. It's all this yes. uncomfortable twisting of shades of gray. And you can't fully be on board with, like, Nick Nolte is good and he should prevail with this. It's like, no, he's got a lot right. of serious flaws.
1: Yeah. It's, again, it's this idea of paying for your sins, right? Um,
0: Yeah. Very Catholic. Uh, Another thing is the movie is almost operatic. It's, he really turns the dials up on the way he films it, on the way it's presented. Sometimes he even shows like a negative exposure of the film. Like you're reminded again and again that this is a film. There's certain things that are exaggerated. uh, Like, you know, when we first see Max Cady, he's in a movie theater, the family's watching a movie and he's sitting at the front of the theater smoking a cigar that's about the size of a submarine sandwich. It's like this cartoonishly big cigar and he's laughing uproariously. And if you watch closely, the smoke billowing out from his cigar, there's also smoke coming out from behind him in the seats behind him. They'd rigged up a smoke machine. And I don't know if we're supposed to notice this as an audience member or not, but it's almost like all of this smoke is just radiating from him, almost like he's the devil sent straight from hell. And then at one point, you know, uh, the wife character <clears> sees him sitting on the fence outside of their house. And he's in front of a display of fireworks. There's this massive display of fireworks going off. It's bright, it's multicolored and the family's not even watching it. It's like, it's, it's the 4th of July. They live close to where the fireworks go off and they don't seem to care. And he just happens to be sitting on the fence right in front of it. So there's all kinds of things like that. Or, you know, late in the movie when there's the final confrontation on the houseboat on the river, Max Kitty at one point lights a flare and the wax from it dribbles down over his hand ostensibly burning him This is right after a pot of boiling water has been thrown in his face and he doesn't react in the slightest So he's superhuman in a number of ways, which I thought was an interesting way of like The way a six might perceive a threat What if this thing goes wrong? What if somebody comes after me and they're impervious to pain and very much like like, Max Katie seems to be a force of nature. He has access to whatever information he needs about what's happening with the family, about the affair, about why the daughter's in summer school, about what she did. And he can get anywhere. You know, he's in the school when she goes in. Or he's, you know, he, he can infiltrate the house even when there's strings on all the entryways that will trigger notice of anybody entering. He can disguise himself as the housekeeper. He can get in there and poison a dog. In one particularly disturbing scene... He clings to the underside of the family vehicle as they flee (laughs) and they drive for who knows how many hours and how strong is this guy? I mean, he's got a harness (laughs) around his belt, but still, what kind of a superhero is this guy that he can actually do? And thank goodness
1: they didn't go over any speed bumps, right?
0: (laughs) So, yeah, it's this exaggerated
2: threat. And, And in this exaggerated presentation of a movie. But, yeah. Yeah, yes, everything was very heightened in it, and that's part of what made it De Palma-esque. The sort of color saturation was not the usual uh, look for a Scorsese movie, but yes, I, I could see things that reminded me of some of the main De Palma movies. Yeah. Uh, a, a Kind of lurid color quality, almost. But yeah, I think this movie it was very interesting. I, I kind of get the feeling that Scorsese went into this looked at the story and sort of mined out of it what was relevant to him. And it gets into more of the kind of deeper psychoanalytic stuff in point six. Many sixes, when their things are not working out well for them, find direction through being against or being persecuted by a bad object to use the psychological language. I don't know what I'm for, but I know what I'm against. I don't know who's my friend, but I know that's my enemy. And uh, there's a certain way in which, as we start to get to know Nick Nolte uh, and Jessica Lange and Juliette Lewis as his family, they're a mess. Yes. Nobody's communicating. There's no honesty. I just remind people, too, the the six in stress goes to what point? Mm. Three. And what's the lower side of three? The passion and the problem of three is deceit. Now, that doesn't usually mean being an overt fibber. It's usually not telling the truth to save your butt or colluding with something so that we all feel okay, even though we kind of know there's something else going on. That's that family in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like this guy becomes the manifestation Mm-hmm. The bad object that's arising out of all the untruth and unresolved hostility that's in that family. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's scenes that but of near violence between Jessica Lang and Nick Nolte. They yes. hate each other. Yes. And yet they're still, and she's screaming at him, why did you stay? Why did you work this out for me? Why are we together? Yes. It's it's like a Greek myth. You're going yeah. to manifest the Furies, and even by the way, is a is a De Palma film.
1: <laughs> yeah, ah, there you go. The Fury. Even the, even the daughter is contemptuous of the father. Of the oh, daughter. yeah. And there's the scene where, you know, he's not supposed to be in the house. And, you know, he starts to stand up and she says, Dad, you can't stand up, remember? You, you know, and it's just, you know, there's this contempt that they all have for yeah, each a other. Yeah, shared right?
2: contempt. Yeah. But it's almost like the bad object is what's necessary and Mm -hmm. has to bring them to the brink of destruction for them to kindly get a clue and break the spell and kind of exercise the demons that are there in that family. I also note, though, and it's very important related to the washing of the hands and so forth, at the end, in the final showdown between Robert De Niro and the family... They get the upper hand, not through Nick Nolte, but through the daughter, Juliette Lewis, and then by, again, nature. The boat hits a rock and he falls yeah. off the boat. And then and a series of accidents yes. are what undoes him. None of the actions of the characters are actually what stops him. And in the end, he is not killed by Nick. Nick Nolte wants to kill him. He's ready to kill him. But then nature removes that yes. option from him He's swept out into the river and he drowns while speaking in tongues and, <laughs> and reciting <laughs> hymns on the way to, into the water uh-huh. and and so again god takes him yes the forces take him the forces spare nick nolte from something that would have sent him in the direction of his enemy forever and so th- there's this little bit of redemption in it. But that's also the scene, his hands cover with blood, and he, he's washed clean in the river. You yes. know, these are these are not subtle religious yeah. course. <laughs> We're getting here. Yeah. You know, they're, they're pretty clear. But it also ends ambiguously because the family at the end, you don't know if they're going to make it. Right. You don't know whether they're going to make up. You don't know if the marriage is going to be saved. All they say is, we know that it can never be the way it was. Right. They're not. They can't go back. You don't know what future they're going to, but the spell has been broken. Yes.
1: Yeah, it was a line she said something about, you know, our life was so idyllic prior to this that the only fear we had was that it would end in some way. And then it did. Right. So that yeah. only fear that she had came true because it did end in a bad way.
2: But I would say, though, I would say, though, Mario, in the midst of it, I don't think the characters would have at the time described their life as idyllic.
1: No, absolutely. It yeah, it yeah, look I think
2: so. In hindsight. Right. The good old days. And to a child. And maybe, to a child, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Well, there you go, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure, because you're right. I mean, they, they clearly weren't a happy couple. You know, there had been some infidelities, and they'd moved around and all that. So, yeah, absolutely right. They were not, they were not what they appeared to be on the surface.
2: There was also a very important... Uh, Scorsese films, you have to watch the details, because there's little... Bits that go flying by, they're really important. And if you're not paying attention, you miss them. There's a discussion where it becomes clear that he was terrified that she, Jessica Lange, was going to commit suicide. That's mm-hmm. how bad things were. Mm-hmm. It's just said almost in passing. That's a rather significant plot point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. A final thought from me on this. There's a great Simpsons episode that parodies Cape Fear, if you haven't seen it, uh, where the uh, De Niro Max Cady character is played by Sideshow Bob and voiced by uh, the guy that played Frazier. Kelsey uh, Grammer. Kelsey Grammer, thank you. Yeah, really, really great episode if you ever get the chance to watch it. So <laughs> so Cape Fear, you know, a, a tough movie to watch, right? Uh, you know, Rush, you made a comment uh uh, you want to share the comment you made
2: about sure? That? Yeah, yeah what w- getting ready for this uh, podcast, I I had to sort of watch the movies where I could fit them in in my teaching schedule. <laughs> I was watching it right before I went to bed, and I just thought, you know, this is not the best movie to watch right before you're going to sleep. Yes. It's yes. very if you want to know what that six angst and anxiety is like, just watch this movie. Yes, you'll, you'll feel plenty. Yeah, yeah. All right,
1: great.
0: Uh, TJ, was there anything else you want to say on this before we move on? Yeah, just two small last things. The scene when Max seduces the daughter, Danielle, you know, as Russ, as you were saying that, he he leverages the discord between the family. That's how he creates a bond with this teenage girl. He masquerades as her summer school drama teacher, who she hasn't met yet. She hasn't seen him, so she doesn't know immediately that it's him. And he speaks to her truthfully in a way that her parents aren't. This is another change that Scorsese made from the original screenplay. Originally, this was a threatening chase scene. And Scorsese found it much more interesting, and this is again a direct quote, where he said he uses the logic and emotion of, and the psychology very much in the way that Satan speaks in the Bible. It is much more interesting and threatening if Max Katie is making genuinely legitimate points to this teenage girl the bond with her. And Scorsese said he, he knows some women friends who've had similar experiences being attracted to dangerous characters, kind of like that. So there's that push and pull.
2: I wanted to say that that, kind of voice that he uses is very similar to the voice of satan in the last temptation of christ Mm. like surely you want this and they don't understand you and why go through all this when you should just have a wife and a life why do you got to go through all this nonsense right right and and of course satan seems to be an angel at that point Mm. right and and theologically
0: is
1: yes a fallen angel absolutely
0: and there's this one tiny moment it just i I rewound this a number of times because I found it so amusing is right after Sam Bowden has hired the PI to protect the family they're having dinner and he's telling his wife and daughter it's like I've got this PI I you know he knows these kind of people he's dealt with them before as soon as I talked to him I felt completely relaxed and then right on cue the phone rings and he flinches. He jumps, as does the other members of the family. They all make <laughs> yeah. this explanation. And the camera closes up on the phone, and he's answered it before the first ring is even stopped. So I just love that bit of six-ish comedy. It's like, I'm relaxed. Somebody else is thinking, "Whoa!" Just did something as innocuous as the phone ring. Yes.
1: <laughs> I thought we were supposed to be relaxed now, Dad. You know, was it was the, the the comment of the daughter, right? So, uh, j- just back to my um, my Brian De Palma reference. So, a lot of the visuals I thought were very De Palma esque. Here, if you you know go back and watch some of his movies, uh, De Palma sort of sees himself as kind of an heir to Hitchcock, right? Yeah. And this was a very Hitchcockian movie through De Palma almost, you know, and I found out recently that they were friends, uh, Scorsese and De Palma, right? So this felt a a bit, a little bit like a homage to me. But the scene about the fireworks you mentioned, TJ, made me think of To Catch a Thief right Mm -hmm. the scene with carrie grant and what was her name was it even Marie saint in that one or uh, kim novak i can't write any anyway um they're uh tippy hint no she was birds but anyway uh they're kissing with in monaco with all these fireworks going off behind and and, you know and i just had this real kind of like this is a just a twisted bizarro version of that uh hitchcock scene in a way so anyway lots of lots of real movie references there Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business friendly, and science minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we are the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development. Team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awareness okay so movie number four for me we have saved the best for last which is why i wanted to sort of change it and to russ's point about watching uh, cape fear before going to bed i was (laughs) re-watching goodfellas this morning starting at six o'clock you know fitting it in prior to this as well and thought to myself this is no way to start your day (laughs) on the one hand however however what a brilliant freaking movie. I mean, you know, I, I've i seen Goodfellas, I don't know how many times, right? But it has been a while since I watched it. And It's been a while since I watched it, really paying attention. And it took me back to first seeing this movie in 1990, I think is when it was released. Yeah. yeah let's yep. see here. I think that's yeah, right. 1990. It's one of a couple of movies made during my lifetime that I remember seeing and walking out of the theater and wanting to say to somebody, did you just see what I saw? Right. I mean, for for me, the two movies that come to mind that had that reaction were this and Pulp Fiction. Right. I remember watching Pulp Fiction and saying, this is something new. This is something special. Right. And I got to see it, you know, real time. And that's the reaction I had to Goodfellas, because this is just a brilliant movie it is scorsese at his best and being reminded that he lost out on for the best director oscar to kevin costner this year is just almost more than i can bear right to to, to, to take right so uh so goodfellas uh, stars again our friend robert de niro tj tell us about the movie goodfellas
0: please. yeah here's a quick overview so goodfellas is the true story of henry hill played by ray liotta who is a foot soldier for the mob in Brooklyn? From the sort of true, yeah, sort of based of true, on a true story, I, yeah. based on his autobiography. <laughs> yeah, true enough. Yeah. 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 So he starts with him as an adolescent in the 50s, and it goes through into the early 80s. So his local mob boss is Paul Cicero, played by Paul Sorvino, who's just a big, quiet guy that everybody defers to. You never see him raise his voice. You never see him enact violence, but he just acknowledges his, he's the guy. He's the local mob guy. Uh, Henry also looks up to Jimmy the Gent Conway, played by Robert De Niro, who is a thief who genuinely enjoyed robbing people and seems to have a bottomless wallet because he tips everyone and tips everyone generously, including some of the people he robs. And Henry is partnered with Tommy DeVito, played by Joe Pesci, who's a hot-tempered mobster. And there's some pretty famous scenes from that that we'll talk about in a moment. And he meets and marries a woman named Karen. I don't know that we find out her maiden last name, but she's played by Lorraine Bracco, who later went on to be quite successful as one of the leads on The Soprano. She was the psychiatrist. So She's a Jewish woman who eventually falls in love with him and becomes complicit in some of his crimes. The movie's split pretty evenly down the center. In the first half of the movie, we see the charm of the mafia life. We see successful heists bringing in money and deference from everyone and respect, including from the staff at the Copacabana in a very famous long shot and in the second half of the movie we see the horrors of mafia life including murder drug addiction prison deception of his own mob boss and eventually henry's arrest and entry into witness protection in exchange for testifying against his former friends and colleagues and the movie ends with him living under an assumed identity in some unnamed midwestern town he's bored with his new safe life he can't even get good food and in his own words he's living like a schnook Something Scorsese said about the movie is that it is a materialism versus spiritual life once again, which is a topic that he said interests him very much. The movie was a moderate success when it came out. And, you know, as you mentioned, I think it won one Oscar, which was for Joe Pesci's performance. And it has really stood the test of time. It's one of those movies whose reputation has only escalated as the years have gone by. And it is sometimes credited as being the movie that kind of Set the template for the way movies went in the 90s in terms of its creativity, its willingness to rewrite the rules. And it's just there isn't a single level that it doesn't work on, whether you're talking acting, directing, cinematography, the use of music, editing. It just scores on every single mark on the checklist.
1: Agreed. Long movie, two and a half 45, I think, hours not a single thing I would have taken out, right? Not a single frame that I would have said, yeah, we didn't need this. It could have gone. Right. I mean, and, and also for me, one of the key things is first of all, the camera work, you, you alluded to the tracking shot when they go into the Copacabana, which is a very famous scene, but also the use of freeze frames, right. Is just genius in this movie. I mean, just stopping the action and, capturing an idea uh, just again brilliant brilliant movie russ tell us about goodfellas tell us about how you see
2: point six represented in oh my gosh uh there's so much in it i i'm just reveling is what you were just saying about those marvelous stop action scenes where the narration comes in Yes, because the whole film is presented from Henry's point of view. Yes. You know, he's, he's sharing this journey with us. It's, it's sort of like a movie, like you're reading a true crime novel, but it's been transferred to this film. Right. Um, I think one of the things you get at the beginning in, in the more positive, innocent is, and it's so beautifully presented and expressed in his language, and the scenes and everything, of his desire to belong. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, going back to Mean Streets, that somehow being made, getting to be part of this, was the way to come to security in the world that Henry knew. Yeah. If you want to be somebody in that world, this is what you did. And this is how you're going to get security. And this is how you'd have a place. Right. And so he does a marvelous job at the beginning of the movie setting that up and making it seem attractive and glamorous. And like when you're seeing the boss Tootie was his name, I think Tootie. Uh-huh. And he said Tootie didn't have to move for anybody, you yeah. know, it's just and his admira- yeah. admiration admiration yeah. 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 and the style and yeah. Yeah. The, this and and this the sense of also his perception that there was some kind of code of honor to all of this. Mm-hmm that you would enter into by joining. And, you know, the, the again, the six-ish thing that everything, you've already mentioned this, DJ, it starts off, it looks like this is going to be a great thing. he's meets his wife and this happens and, you know, there's some hairy things that happen, that, but they handle them and and they seem to handle them okay until until you get deeper into the movie and the complexities and the contradictions of this life start coming home to roost in various ways. I think, when I remember back to this film, before I rewatch it, just remembering it, of course, I remember a lot the Joe Pesci character.
1: What do you mean funny? Funny how? Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm here to amuse you? Like, I'm here to
2: amuse you? And killing the the waiter, you know, and just, and so forth. And also, his surprise and consternation at his setup when he thinks he's going to be made, and they're, they're whacking him you yeah. know the,
1: and that moment of realization that's like right before they put a book oh,
2: what does he say oh i try. oh, oh shit. no i think it's what he said yeah. or oh no that's oh, what he no. Says. oh no because yeah. he realizes his own game has been turned against him but here yes. again this is this scorsese thing of penance the violent mm-hmm. guys die violent deaths mm-hmm. you know Yes. Even if you're going to get that knife to deal with the deer paw, you know, you're <laughs> still going to have to pay the price at some point, you know. The other thing I just like about this movie, I don't think it's particularly sick, is just how many of the sort of peripheral characters seem like real people. Like the the mom, when they go to get something to, you know, off the yeah. guy in the trunk of the car, That she's she just very believable as that person. They're arguing with her and so yes. forth. The movie creates, and this is one of Scorsese's gifts, a world you can really believe in. You really believe this is happening. Again, it's presenting at the end, this again, the moral ambiguity. What does he do for his security? Is he going to rat out on his his pals and everything to avoid certain consequences of his actions? Well, yes, he is going to do that. And, and that you're set up again in a way that the movie is not passing judgment on Henry. Right. And it's not just that he's the narrator. I mean, the whole the way it's shot, the way it's set up, the way it's described, it kind of puts... One of the powers of the film is it puts you in his shoes. Mm-hmm. What the heck would you do in this situation? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of other things to, to be said about <laughs> it, but I, I think... The whole overarching story of it is you covered very well, TJ. Yeah, and it's this six-ish thing that we saw in all of the films, too. I don't think, of all of the characters we've discussed, I think Henry is the least concerned with goodness, which is funny given the name of the movie, Goodfellas. There aren't any Goodfellas in this movie from that point of view. There aren't any. But he's not concerned with that. He's... Not like Harvey Keitel in Mean Streets. He's not that guy. But he's still concerned with wrestling with his sense of honor and what that means in the context of the life he's living in. So that is six-ish, too, even though he's not. I would describe Henry as a faith-based or religious guy. No,
1: <laughs> not at all. <laughs> no. no, no. Look, these folks are the ultimate pragmatists, right? And even though they pay lip service to honor and code, he has that one voiceover where he's talking about, you know these guys were just killing each other, right? At first, you know, we brought off that there would be a reason, but, you know, sometimes it would be guys just getting into an argument over nothing, and then all of a sudden somebody gets shot. And there's that scene, too, you know, again, about the injustice and danger of the world where Spider, played by Michael Imperioli, who later went on to be in The Sopranos, you know, is just this kid who's trying to make a buck, you know, by serving these gangsters playing poker, and Joe Pessy kind of shoots him, on a dare, almost, you know, because the other guys are embarrassing him from taking guff from the kid, and then there's that scene again to talk about the moral—I won't even call it ambiguity, but moral indifference of things. And, you know what they're arguing over is who's going to dig the hole, right? You know, and, and Jimmy Conway, the, the De Niro character, says to him, "Well, you're digging the hole this time." And Pesci is like, "Oh, what? Like I never dug a hole before. I've done plenty of holes. I'll dig this hole. I don't care." You know, and so this is kind of the most existential movie, I think. Of the ones that we've talked about, right? Where stuff just happens. I was looking for security by being a mobster, and it just rained down all this horror and terror on me for this price I paid for wanting this sense of security. And there's no outcome yeah. into, to it. You know, there's nothing to look forward
2: to, to hold on to. Yeah, esteem too security and esteem both yes but but i was thinking about how some of these kind of absurd existential conversations like that one when they're digging the hole are kind of precursors (laughs) to uh some of the conversations in pulp fiction yes yes you know when they're at the mother's when they're on the way to assassinate somebody and they're talking about the differences of of fast food in europe you know yes yes
1: (laughs) Yeah, the conversation at the mother's house, uh, Joe Pesci's mother is actually played by Martin Scorsese's yes. mother. She's talking about the painting she did. And just my favorite line in the movie, and it's not one of the ones that stands out, but it's like, look, yeah, I like this one. You got the one dog looking this way, you got the other dog looking the other way, and you got the guy sitting there. What do you want from me? You know? <laughs> I mean, it just for me, I just love that line. I could listen to it a million times because it's just so it's just so something somebody would say. Yeah. Right. You know, it's just such a real line of dialogue that you can hear from these guys. So the other
2: thing that that struck me about this film, seeing it again, and it's it's, I'm just trying to articulate it now. It was more of a sense. There's a sense in this one that partly what Scorsese is looking at, even though in a certain way, this is, as we might say, his least overtly spiritual movie, his most pragmatic existential movie of all of them that we've looked at, certainly and maybe even amongst his notable films, I would say that's true. There's another way in which he's showing how none of these people are really aware at all of the world that they're living in. They're all going about their business, yakking, doing this and that, but there's a profound lack of realism in the realism. It's realistically Mm -hmm. depicting people who are not in touch with reality or what they're doing or how they're living. Yeah. When I think about that film and how it it got to me, that's how it got to me. It's just showing just regular people living their lives with no clue about what their life is that they're living.
1: Yes. Or what other people outside of their life are looking for, right? There's that scene where his wife is talking about spending the afternoon with all the other wives and about how, you know, they talk about stupid things and they wear cheap clothes and they have, you know, bad skin and all these things where they think they're these glamorous people. But they're living this, you know, kind of low-quality sort of existence, yes. uh, but thinking they're kings and queens. Yeah, that's right?
2: that's again one of those microcosm scenes. In the Scorsese, Eve, you're going to find those where, in a way, what she's saying is the whole film.
1: Yeah. So um, to tie this to kind of sixness, and again, we're talking pretty low level, you know. No, this six, is not healthy you know, six sort of, in this film.
2: You're not gonna, <laughs> there's, I don't think there's not healthy much healthy, healthy six in, in
1: Goodfellas, no. <laughs> yeah, but there's uh, paranoia in the extreme, right? I mean, this movie and it keeps is escalating. Parano- Absolutely. And so there is this kind of break in the movie, and it has to do with drugs, right? I mean, it has to do with, you know, things were going okay, until Henry ends up going to jail for four years. And the only way he can support his family is by dealing drugs from prison to get family to them. Now, that's a big no-no in the mob world, allegedly, right? You know, you know it goes back to the godfather even. And he becomes, you know, an addict, like many you know, people who get involved in that world do. And his world starts to crumble. But there's also this different tone, right? Whereas before, the first half of the movie is kind of epitomized by that powerful Pauli character. You know, I don't have to move for anybody. Yeah. We're kings of the world. Now, all of a sudden, there's just fear and anxiety and, you know, that sort of coke paranoia
2: coming into play. And everything really changes at that point. That, you remind me of something else I noticed this time, is that that... Clearly is the turning point, because while there aren't a lot of rules in that mob world, that's one of them, and he crosses it. He crosses that rule. His ostensible reason is to take care of his family. Now, can we think of another recent dramatic thing where somebody crosses a line around the sale of drugs to take care of their family and it leads them into a whole bunch of dark stuff? that's Breaking Bad. Yeah. It's, it's like the template yeah. for the whole idea of Breaking Bad right there. That there's certain yes. lines. That's one thing I, I think this is also saying, that there are different <laughs> circles of hell. Mm-hmm. And that if you cross certain lines, you're going to go into, even if your life is difficult, you have no idea how difficult it can get. I think that's another mm-hmm. reason why there's a certain queasiness to watching this film, because it, it takes yes. you there. Like yes. Breaking Bad did. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yes. Another movie where things just keep getting worse and worse. And, you know, as, as we were talking after I mentioned about this being the least of his overtly you know, religious movies, I started thinking about the Dostoevsky line, you know, where if, you know, God didn't exist, all things are possible. You know, it's, it's the notion of God that keeps people on the right path, the fear of punishment. And that was missing for these folks. And, and the, the
2: consequences were there for sure. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Mario. And I want to just Highlight that for a second, because I think that's another way you could look at this. I think all of Scorsese's major films are exploration of some kind of question having to do with faith, having to do with doubt, you know, his recurrent themes. This one, from that point of view, and I never thought of it this way until you just said that, it's sort of an exploration. It's like, what if there isn't a God? What if yeah. there is no faith? Without faith and without God and without that Catholic part of my life, what does life look like? Where does it go? And I kind of suddenly have this sense that that is one way he might have been exploring the themes that he does in this film.
1: Yeah. So I want to talk about some of the characters, you know, in in type six, because Henry seemed like a six-ish character. And for me, you know, one of the things I think when I hear people talk about different Enneagram types, they're often reflecting the kind of people who go to Enneagram workshops, right? So our views of different Enneagram types are skewed, you know, it's a particular sample, right? So the sixes that we see and understand are the kind of people that we, you know, encounter at a, at a workshop or whatever. But there are a whole lot of sixes out there who aren't like that, right? And who are more, you know, again, not the Woody Allen nebishy sort of six, but kind of scary, intimidating six. So I thought Henry was a good example of a six-ish character. And it brings us to the Jimmy Conway, Robert De Niro conversation yeah. that I think would be interesting to have here, right? So tell me, Russ, about the Jimmy Conway character and De Niro in general.
2: Well, you know, I think, well, a couple of things, I tend to agree with you. And in the early days when Don and I were doing our Enneagram trainings, we used to have a section of showing film clips in one of the advanced trainings and just have people give their reasons of why they thought somebody was a type. And we used Henry as an example of the six. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And just, yeah. wait, you didn't have to agree with us, but we were more interested in what was yep. your reasoning? Why do you exactly. see what you see? but going back to Jimmy Conway, it's interesting because neither he nor Henry are kind of the doubt riddled nebbishy six. Neither of them are, but they're different in their temperament. There's a kind of assurance around Jimmy Conway that Henry never quite succeeds in having. He he has good bluster, but his insecurities are more obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, Robert De Niro has done a lot of characters along the lines of Jimmy Conway. He's done a number of them, yes. which are this kind of more hard edged side. But I think it's as you said, it, it, as I started to look at sixes and sort of the tracking them down through the range of their various manifestations and ideas depending on how healthy average or unhealthy they are you know working with what we used to call the levels right that there's a kind of a confidence then there's kind of more of a chaotic nervous thing but as you get in the more unhealthy the confidence returns in a certain number Mm -hmm. of sixes where there's more of It could look like fanaticism, but it could just look like a hard-ass person determined to do whatever pragmatically they need to do for their family, for what they believe in, etc. And they don't have so many limits. And I see Jimmy Conway as that kind of character. He's already gone further than Henry. He's further down the road away from redemption, shall we say. And so there's a sense, as I said we go through this period of confusion and back and forth and overthinking of things, but then sixes tend to get like an idée fixe or, or something they're obsessed with or something they're against and something, and all of their psyche and energy gets oriented around that. It could be something they're loyal to. It could be an idea that they believe in. It could be, again, about an enemy, or it could be about taking care of a certain person at all costs. But I think you see in this character that that he is just, in a sense, although he looks more confident and together than Henry, he's actually more deteriorated than he is. Yeah. That's the way, as I've watched it over the years, that keeps coming back to me. He'll do stuff that Henry would hesitate to do. Yeah. And I was reading about
1: the character, yeah.
2: the, the person yeah.
1: that that character is based yeah. on. His name was actually Jimmy Burke. So these were. Based on you know, real people. Yeah. yeah, based on real people. And that guy had a horrific childhood and life. I mean, he was, you know. Growing up in foster homes at a very early age, you know, a victim of sexual and physical violence and, you know, was just a real hardened criminal, you know, at a very early age. So he was he was a real uh, bad person. And I agree with you. There is this element of, again, it's interesting the way you put it, Russ, about those transitions, because, again, if you think about this as somebody who's seeking security in some way, the more away from it we feel the more we grasp onto that thing that gives us a feeling of it, right? So even if it's our hatred and anger, at least I know where I stand with yes. it, right? I can sort of lash out with it. So we're really great observations. Yeah. Um, and
2: it's it's in that kind of mental structure, and you see a similar thing in ones, one yeah. can justify terrible actions. Yeah. I have a reason yes. to do it. Yes, Yes. So
1: before we, uh, because I do want to talk a little bit more about De Niro because that's interesting to me. But TJ, any thoughts on Goodfellas that uh, you wanted to share?
0: Yeah, a few different things. One of the things that you find a lot in Scorsese's work, like I was referring to this earlier, is these stark contrasts. And that happens a lot with the freeze frames in this movie. It's something you referred to directly. And it was inspired by something (laughs) that happened to him once when he was a youngster on the street. He observed two drunks in his neighborhood, one of whom was so drunk that the other one was stealing the guy's shoes and as this was happening as he was witnessing (laughs) he heard the music coming through a window of Fats Domino's song When My Dreamboat Comes Home which is really upbeat and uplifting and the contrast these two things just hit him in the heart and he thought why don't they do that in film and thought you know a love scene with love music is just mediocre so he loved these strange contrasts so the movie starts with De Niro and Pesci and Leota in a car and they're driving They don't know why and they hear this knocking sound and eventually they realize it's because the guy that they thought they murdered who's in the trunk of the car is still alive they pull over and then they stab him and they shoot him again before burying him. and that's Billy Batts who's a made man we find out later and then we you know we freeze frame from that moment and that's when we hear that first line saying as far back as I can remember I always wanted to be a gangster that's a weird thing structure that moment you know like to (laughs) if you were to put something really attractive like we're about to see of somebody deferring or getting a big payday (laughs) from a robbery yeah like the Copa
2: cabana right yeah Yeah, right
0: but an opening scene where you just completed an incomplete murder that's really brutal (laughs) and there's moments like that that happen again and again and again so early in the movie you know his father finds out that he's skipping school and he's beating them with a belt yelling at him freeze frame of the father you know brandishing that belt and then the voiceover is kind of lackadaisical saying, you know, I figure everybody had to take a beating sometime. It wasn't anguish. It wasn't, I right. hate my father. Yeah. I couldn't wait to get away. It was just like, eh, whatever. yeah, whatever. You got to take your licks. <laughs> or, you know, in another scene, not too long later, he lights a bunch of cars on fire and they blow up as he's running away. Freeze frame on that. And then the voiceover talks about how some guys from the neighborhood brought home his mother's groceries for her. Why? Out of respect. But, you know, as, as cars are blowing up, or when they beat Billy Bats to death, there's Donovan song playing, like this peace-loving yeah. folky.
2: Yeah, it was Hurdy-Gurdy uh, Man, if I recall. Hurdy-Gurdy yeah. Her- Man, Atlantis.
1: yes. Yeah. I, I just wanted to point out about the freeze frame with the cars. the Something we didn't touch on, I wanted to mention, crucifix images throughout Scorsese's work, yeah. right? I mean, just the number of people with their arms spread, and and that was a good example of one there, right? So he's fleeing away, And when the freeze frame, his arms are spread out, you know, kind of the crucifix thing. And, you know, one could say that the flames of hell in the background. Right. So, again, that dichotomy. But anyway, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, TJ.
0: Yeah. The scene, uh, Russ, you were referring to earlier where they stop off and they end up having a full meal with Joe Pesci's character's mother, played by Martin Scorsese's mother, who really did cook for them. They really did eat a full meal of pasta and beans. And all that dialogue is improvised. (laughs) Scorsese didn't tell his mother what the overall scenario was. (laughs) So she was just improvising the scene of being an Italian mother, chatting lovingly with her son and his friends, not knowing that there was a dead body in the back of the trunk that they were going off to bury. And in that scene, you can see Henry's kind of quiet. He's kind of disturbed by this, that we're all having this friendly conversation about the mother's painting. When there's a corpse of a maid guy, in the back, and that's one of the other rules yes. in the mafia is like you don't touch Man. a made guy, period, yeah. which is part of the whole unraveling for him. And then another famous contrast in the movie is right. there's a big montage. Uh, we hear the the piano coda of Layla, which is several minutes long, as the camera showing us all these different mobsters involved in the Lufthansa heist that Jimmy then killed to cover up his own crime. So there are corpses are being dumped from a dumpster into a garbage truck or we find one on a meat hook in a a freezer truck and different things like that. Just brutal stuff set to the music, the sad longing music of unrequited love of Layla. So all of these things happening again and again just to kind of to push you of like, oh, this is fun. Well, actually, it's not. Oh, this is violent. Oh, but there's this other side to it. You can't just look at it in one way.
2: As you say that too, you remind me of a first impression that I had when I saw this film, you know, when it first came out in 1990. I thought, in a way, it was Scorsese's response to The Godfather. Mm. Say more, that's interesting. That there was a way that even though people were getting whacked and stuff in The Godfather, it still managed to portray something romantic about yeah. life in the mob that, you know, became popular for a long time thereafter. Yeah. And he wanted to say, there's nothing romantic about it. Yeah. This is hell on earth, actually. And here's what it really looks like from somebody who had a pretty close-up view of what was going on. Now, you know, whatever Mario Puzo had going on with all that, which I suspect he did of something, and whatever, you know, uh, Francis Ford Coppola did, that I think, Scorsese was in some sense, not just that film, but there were a series of movies coming out about the mob that were sort of not exactly glamorizing it, but almost. Yeah, romanticizing, romanticizing it. Romanticizing right? yeah. it. And he yeah. said, honey, it ain't romantic. And what made me think of that, TJ, was the juxtaposition of this most romantic music against events that are anything but romantic.
0: Yeah, seemingly of good friends yeah. Yeah. and associates. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, Mean Streets yeah. came out a year after yeah. The Godfather, and one of the scenes early on is one of the mobsters hustling a couple of teenagers for 20 bucks when they wanted to buy some firecrackers. That doesn't sound very badass for the mafia guy. No.
2: <laughs> no, you Mean Streets is definitely a precursor to this film. Yeah. Definitely yeah. a precursor, but it was just showing these are not Profound individuals. They're sort of stumbling through life like everybody else, but with uh, more extreme edges, you yes. could say. Yes.
1: Great. All right. Good. Uh, TJ, was there something else you want
0: Yeah, one Go more on. thing. Uh, in general, like a big thing that the second half of the movie emphasizes again and again, and very much a sixth theme is, you know, I want to feel secure. I want to know where I stand. <coughs> the second half of the movie makes it clear that even though life in the mafia seems to promise that, it does not deliver. So Joe Pesci's character kills Billy Bats even though he's a made guy. You need permission to go against him? They didn't get it. Polly wants to find out what happened to Billy Batts. Henry lies to his face. He's the one person you're never supposed to lie to. Tommy kills Spider, you know, as we talked about before, establishing he could lose it on anybody at any time. Uh, Tommy, instead of getting made, gets shot in the head. Karen consults with Jimmy near the end of the movie. Even though he seems to be helping her, she senses that he's setting up get her killed you know just go in that door there's some nice christian dior dresses and she gets spooked and 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 runs away no go 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 and then when henry consults with jimmy the same thing happens and there's this interesting camera effect that i first saw in a documentary about cinematography before i'd ever seen the movie where the two of them are sitting in a booth at the diner and the camera is zooming in and backing up at the exact same rate So if you watch it carefully, the frame never changes, but the background seems to be undulating in this weird way. The actors look entirely consistent, but the background just, it's doing this thing that's not immediately noticeable, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's this visual way of saying, all is not well. And here's this guy that Henry has known literally for decades, and he even says, you know, when, when they come to kill you, it's not like it is in the movies. They don't yell, they don't threaten, the killers have smiles on their faces That's right. and they seemingly have this right. really pleasant meal and interaction mm-hmm. and Jimmy's going to help them. And first he wants to send them to Florida to murder this guy, but he just knows if I go, I'm not coming. I'm going to be killed too. Yeah. So there is no security. All the rules can be broken.
1: Yes. And they come at you when you're at your weakest too, is something that he said that I noticed there. Right. So you're, you're absolutely right. So if you remember how the movie ends, you've got Henry, the Ray Liotta character, You know, in the middle of nowhere in the witness protection program, you know, living like a schnook. And then it cuts from that to Joe Pesci in full gangster attire. Now, if you notice, what he's wearing is not clothing of the day. It's old time Jimmy Cagney gangster attire shooting his gun uh, at the camera. Right. So you think the movie has ended with Henry picking up his newspaper in the lawn. And then there's this cut, which is a reference to a Jimmy Cagney movie. I'm drawing a blank on the name of it that ends the same way after Cagney dies. They show him shooting at the camera. But it's this idea. And I think this is the theme that ties all of these movies together. To me, what that is saying is don't get too comfortable. Right. Right. Don't think that the danger is ever gone. Don't think that you're ever safe. Danger lurks out there somewhere. And in all of these movies, that's the theme that comes back and forth. And I think that's the theme of the six, you know, and for better or worse, right? I mean, it is a rough world, right? Bad things do happen and it is good to be safe, right? That's the, you know, the thing that the six brings to us is this awareness. But it's this disconcerting thing of... Don't ever get too comfortable because the wolf is out there somewhere. Yeah. Stay awake. Yes. Stay, stay, stay awake. as they
2: say, stay frosty. That's what they say
1: nowadays, right? <laughs> so, the one thing we jumped over, and I want to touch on because we had a conversation prior to this, and then we, we've got to wrap up here. But, De Niro, a lot of sick stuff going on here, right? Yeah. So, you know, and again, I, I haven't, you know, watched interviews of De Niro. There aren't that many of them, so I haven't got a sense. I haven't read any books about him, but I'm starting to realize that a lot of the characters he plays could be sixes, you know, even ones that I thought were sort of eight-ish. Curious about your thoughts on that, guys.
2: Yeah, I tend to think so. I wasn't sure, and I know some of our colleagues have typed him as a four, but as you and I discussed, that it would be very peculiar for an actor to not once in a 40- or 50-year-long acting career to never play their own type. He hasn't played a four once. Not a single time. That would be really surprising. So, you know, I think the general bets are on eight or six. But as we were discussing, Mario, the more I study him and the more I read about his childhood and so forth, the more I tend to vote for six. He was... Described as a very shy child. Yeah. And the acting was a way he started to come out of his shyness and isolation. He came from a broken home. His family parted ways because his father came out as gay. Oh. In a time where that would have been really tough for a kid, yeah. as you can imagine. And so I think he knows how to adopt that aggressive, hard ass persona that has served him so well in so many of these movies but he's also a thoughtful guy he's also a quiet guy he's also a very private fellow yeah. and the sort of sense of provocation to me feels more six than eight. Eights, yeah. generally speaking are not provocateurs but sixes can sure be provocateurs yeah yeah yeah
1: so it's interesting for me, you know, as again, watching these characters, I would, you know, again, certainly the I would agree the Jimmy Conway character is a six from Goodfellas, the Johnny boy in Mean Streets, very much a six can make the argument that Max Cady is a six and Cape Fear.
2: Dad and meet the parents.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Classic, classic six character. And, you know, so I'm I'm curious to go back at a lot of these things that I used to think of as eights, like the Jake LaMotta portrayal and that sort of thing, and rewatch them and say, hmm, maybe there's some six stuff going on here that uh, I hadn't quite seen before. All right, great. So, guys, thank you for this conversation. This has been great. Russ, again, we really appreciate you. Uh, being here to be our guest and to share your insights with us, again, go to russhudson.com and enneagraminstitute.com to find out more about Russ. Russ has you know, always got new and interesting things happening. So, you know, again, huge respect for you and your work, Russ, and look forward to us hanging out in person again yeah. one of these yeah. days at <laughs> some point. TJ, as always, thank you. I, I know you're up and doing some work again. Real quick, if you don't mind, tell us what you're
0: doing up there in Canada,
1: TJ. Plug your gig for us, would you?
0: Yeah, I'm helping a friend work on a one-person show whose theme we just identified yesterday is liminality. Very cool. Very cool. Being in that in-between state. And that is a term that I just learned from Russ Hudson last year.
1: <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right. So you've been listening to another episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. This has been about Martin Scorsese and Enneagram Type 6. Next time, we have in line Spike Lee and Enneagram Type One. Uh, Looking forward to that conversation. We'll be joined by another special guest. So, guys, thank you. Great to see you and see you next time. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action Podcast Network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.